Welcome, everybody. You are listening to the Life Plus God podcast. I'm your host, Alyssa Robinson, and today my guest is Reverend Don Kirsch. Don, welcome. Thank you. I'm Thank so you. glad that here. you're here. Uh, today's question that we're covering is pretty simple, but also pretty complex, and it's just why Methodism? And the purpose of this question is not to persuade, it's not to convert. I'm not here trying to get you to believe in the theology of Methodism. But the reason that I brought Don on the show is so that we can explore some of his life story as well as his understanding of Methodism and what drew him to the faith because uh, Don did not grow up in the Christian faith uh, and by default, nor did you grow grow up with Methodism. That's right. And me on the other end, I have been a lifelong Methodist uh, and I think, you know, the Methodist church is the only church I've ever been a member of. Um, and so just to get a little bit of understanding of why why do we love the Methodist church? Where does the uh, Methodist church still have room to grow? Where are we quite missing? And our mm. personal stories. In a nutshell, Don, that's, that's why you're my guest today. Great. Thank you. I'm so it's glad to, to have you. Yeah. I'd love to get started just getting to know you and your story a little bit better. Mm -hmm. What was your faith upbringing like, and what was your journey to Christ? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I've told it. I've told this story several times, and uh, it's. Um, I was not raised in a Christian family. I, I, no, let me back up. I was not raised in a church family. Uh, I have every reason to believe that my parents were Christians, but we didn't go to church. Um, there was—I uh, can remember my dad when I was when I was little. I can remember my dad uh, coming in to tuck me in at night and maybe reciting the Lord's Prayer or the twenty-third Psalm. So he had been raised with Christian influence or biblical influence, at any rate, and and I know that my mom had too. But that did not spill over into our family. We, uh, our family was really um, was really st stricken, I guess you could say, with uh, with addiction and alcoholism. And uh, you know, I think the our focus was on survival and uh, mm -hmm. at much of the time. And uh, so it wasn't that we were anti-church; it was just not part of our not part of our family life. And um, and I think that, you know, that really kind of helped to shape my uh, indifference. I was not anti-church or anti-Christian. Uh, I was really just kind of indifferent to religion. But uh, it wasn't until later on in my early adulthood that uh, things began to change. I cannot remember any conscious uh, beliefs or even desires to understand something more or know something. Uh, and I, you know, it isn't for the fact that uh, God wasn't trying to work through family members on our behalf, because uh, my grandmother on my mom's side was part of a very uh, highly charismatic kind of pe Pentecostal uh, church movement back in the uh, 1950s. And I can remember when we would go to visit her, or we even lived with her for a short time, that uh, she took us to church with her. She took me to church with her a time or two. I don't know if my sister went or not, but uh, 
but it was a very different kind of an experience if you've ever been to a Pentecostal-style service. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot going on, mm. and some people are unfamiliar with it. It can be a little bit frightening even for a child, you know. So, uh, so we did have that kind of sprinkling of Christian faith and, and religion uh, in, in our family, but nothing ever really took took hold for us. Did that experience of going to church with your grandmother uh, elicit any curiosity or did it kind of scare you, like you mentioned, and, and turn you off to the whole thing? Or maybe you were just like, well, this is a weird thing and moved on with your life. Yeah, I remember after, I don't know that I went more than once. Uh, as I think about it, I probably one time was enough for me and I didn't, I really didn't want to go back. And it was a little bit frightening to me as a child. And, and the, at that time I would have been probably no more than maybe six, seven years old. So you mentioned that as you got older, something changed. Yeah. What, what was that? What happened? There were a couple of things, really I, what I would call kind of life changing, uh, experiences that occurred. Um, having been raised in a, in a family uh, where my mom was an alcoholic, and I mean, it was it was really a, all that stuff that comes with that. And uh, so, as a child, I I learned, and as I grew up into being into my teen years, I began to kind of get the idea that you know, when life goes haywire, drink something. Mm. You know, you can self medicate. You can sort of get through it that way. That's well, what. That's I, what. Yeah, that's what you were subconsciously taught. That's what I saw mom doing, yeah. you know. Now, my dad never did that. He, he really held it together, and he was the glue that, that held our family together financially. He was, he was working sometimes two and three jobs and working 60 to 80 hours a week, and uh, uh, dad was not a drinker. Uh, he had been, I think, even before I was born, but, um, but Dad said, well, I need one of those in the family because his role, he saw, was to keep the family intact and mm -hmm. keep it going as, as good as possible. But, um, but living in that kind of an atmosphere, uh, I learned that that's how you deal with the tough things of life. And by the time I was about 19, I was probably well on my way to being a full-fledged alcoholic myself yeah, as an older teenager. And... Uh, so one of the first things that happened was um, uh, right out of high school, uh, after Anita and I got, or even before Anita and I got married, we got married uh, the same year that we graduated from high school. Oh, wow. I didn't realize y'all were high school sweethearts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. She put up with me a long time. A very long time. Yeah. Y'all really. <laughs> 56 years this December. Wow. So, well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, but she, uh, we got married. Um, in December of 67, and we had graduated from high school in, uh, in June of 67. And I, right after graduation, I'd enlisted in the Air Force because with Vietnam going on, the draft was still being uh, utilized. And uh, I had a choice. I could enlist in the service of my choice, or I could wait for the draft. So uh, I, I took, I made my own choice, and I went in the Air Force. And uh, during my time in the Air Force, uh, by the time uh, I had spent about six years in the Air Force, no, more than that, let's see, it was in 1978 that uh, I received orders for an assignment overseas that was going to take me away from the family for a full year. 
They couldn't go with me. It was a, considered what they call a short tour. That means that it's no longer than a year. And, and y'all had kids at that point? We did. Yeah. We did. Yeah. Our, uh, our kids were like six and four. Mm. And um, our, uh, we were living in Denver at the time. And I was stationed at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver. And there was a, a church in that community, in that part of Denver that we lived in, that had an outreach ministry uh, with uh, a bus ministry for children. And they were going around different neighborhoods, knocking on doors and offering to take, if anybody had children in the home, offering to take them to Sunday school on Sundays. So uh, they came to our door and knocked on it and said, uh, they introduced themselves, very nice people. And they said, uh, we'd like to come by in the Happy Hopper, that's what they called their bus, and pick up your kids and take them to Sunday school. Do you think they'd like that? And, you know, Anita and I said, yeah, sure, they'd love it, you know. And uh, we weren't involved in a church. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we didn't have any kind of religious life of any so kind. So you and Anita both didn't really practice any faith traditions or incorporate spirituality in the sense of going to church or... That's correct. Was Anita raised in the church? Or? No, her, no, her childhood, her raising was much the same as mine. Yeah. With the same kind of difficulties. Yeah. Uh, too, so... Uh, so no, we didn't. We didn't have a religious life. But you thought, oh yeah, the kids would enjoy that. Yeah, and it'd be good for the kids, wouldn't it? Wouldn't yeah. it be good for the kids if they had a little religion? You know, maybe we ought to. That so many parents want that. We have parents today who yeah. are just like, well, I, church isn't for me, but I do want my kids to be there. Yeah. Um, is it just the you want them to go to a place where they feel loved and they learn about love? Like, what is it that you're like? Oh, it's not for me, but I'm going to put my kids here. Remember I said that early in my childhood, I think the seeds of faith were being sown. Mm -hmm. And God doesn't sow seeds uh, so that they won't germinate, so that they'll just kind of blow away with the wind. But those seeds of faith uh, are tended by His Spirit over time. And because He wants them to grow. He wants them to grow into full-fledged fruit-producing plants. And... Uh, so I think this was all part of it. I think it was the spirit at work in us to, you know, if, if the way that I'm going to get you into the kingdom, you know, God might have been saying is through your kids, mm. we'll do it. Yeah. So, but anyhow, we put them on the happy hopper. They started, <laughs> they started coming to get the kids every Sunday and the kids were loving it. It was great. They just had a big time. And uh, then suddenly I was stationed there at a, a really nice Air Force base in a good part of Colorado and Denver. And I got orders to go on an assignment that would take me away from the family for a year. And, you know, having been, I was already, I'd already been in the service now for over 10 years, almost 11 years. And uh, this was, this really pulled the rug out from under me. Uh, I didn't expect it. Uh, I thought I'd really uh, had a home right there, you know, in, in, uh, in Denver, and I was going to stay at that base for a long time. But the orders came, and I was headed for the Middle East, and uh, for some reason, and uh, this is a mysterious work of the Spirit of God, in my opinion, but the guy that came to ask the kids, ask our permission for the kids to go to uh, Sunday school, real nice young pastor, and uh, not a Methodist, different group, but he... Uh, I, I called him up, and I said, I'd like to spend some time talking to you. I said, I've kind of hit a wall here. So I told him about the assignment, and I was kind of concerned about it. And he began to share with me the importance of having Christ in your life. 
And he gave me a very concise, simple uh, presentation of the gospel. And he said, uh, you know, I, I, I want you to really think very seriously about this because God's at work in your life and you can get through this assignment that you've gotten. Uh, but God will join you and God will be with you. And, and you know, he really, it was really a compelling argument. And I knew that there was nothing I could do to get out of it. There's nothing I could do to uh, shore up my my willingness to go and all those other things. I didn't have any choice. And I was, yeah, the I Air was, Force is going to... Hey, the Air Force, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, and so, but anyhow, um, I was, uh, I accepted Christ at that time, at that moment, and was baptized. And unlike most Methodists, uh, I was baptized by immersion. This was a, a Christian group, a denomination that uh, believed in baptism by immersion. And uh, it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience for me. So God was still at work and, and trying to, you know, bring me into the kingdom and, and help me to become a follower of Christ. So, uh, so that was the first, I think that was the first experience or, or incident in my life where I was shocked into turning to God. Mm. Okay, this is, I think, an important part of, of my experience of God's grace. Uh, sometimes he lets us get up to the edge to where we got nowhere else to turn. I think about, you know, Israel. They had the armies of Pharaoh behind them and the deep Red Sea ahead of them. They were behind, between the devil and the deep Red Sea. And uh, they couldn't look anywhere but up. Mm. That's all they had. All they could do was turn to God. And I think that's where I was at that time. And God met me there at that point. What was Anita's reaction to all of this? Was it shocking? I mean, I know the deployment would have been shocking, but yeah. for you to have this religious experience, uh, what what was she thinking? Of course, you can't speak on her behalf, but I'm sure y'all talked about it before. What was she thinking and feeling about all this? Um, you know, as I remember, um, I think she was probably at a point at, uh, that uh, if, if anything will get him to stop drinking, uh, that's a good mm -hmm. thing. Not that we necessarily expected that baptism would uh, cause me to get sober. I was looking at it from the standpoint of just getting through a year away from my family. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I d yeah, I didn't realize at this point, 10 years into your marriage, you were still struggling with oh, alcohol. Oh, heaven, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that went on for quite some time, that struggle, so leading to the second incident of, of a life-changing experience. Um, and, you know, like I said, sometimes God just lets us, lets us implode <laughs> to put us back together. And he doesn't put the same person back together. He puts us back together better. So... Uh, Went off to my assignment in the Middle East, and uh, it was a rough year. I mean, uh, it was a rough year for me. It was rough for Anita and the kids, uh, being away from them for that year. I did get to come home for a little while mid-tour uh, and then just have to go back. That I might have been better off just staying the whole year, you know. But, uh, but then uh, I came back, and uh, kind of, we kind of settled into a— uh, another assignment uh, here in the United States. And uh, the next thing that happened was probably five years after I got back from that assignment, the drinking had gotten worse. Uh, 
and of course all of the effects of that. And what I, what what was your relationship to God like? So you had accepted Christ before leaving. Was there any growth in that time? That's a great great question, um, because during that time there was a there was a struggle going on between me wanting to do the things of God, wanting to do right, wanting to be right with God, and then that other part of me that wanted to be the old oh, me. Oh, man, I'm hearing Paul in my head yeah, of yeah, why Romans do I seven. do the things I hate? Romans 7, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that struggle went on, and uh, once in a while it would look like maybe the spirit was, was winning. Once in a while it would look like maybe the evil one was winning. But that's what made it such a rough year. And uh, overall, when I came back, I think, I think that, that God had gained a lot of ground because I, was, I had experienced uh, incidents of his presence in my struggle, you know. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe it, but I, I knew, like, like Paul said, I knew the, the good things I wanted to do, but in my flesh I couldn't do them. And I had not reached the point of an unconditional surrender to the Lord by that time. So, um, so when I came back, uh, we went back to uh, another church, not a Methodist church. We went to a different church. Um, and we got in pretty good with those folks. I mean, we seemed to resonate with them. They were part of the same denomination of the church in Denver that had the Happy Hopper. So we kind of lined up with that same group again uh, when I got back. When we got back and got involved with that church, they, um, we, we began to kind of disagree with some of their, their policies, some of their theology, some of their positions on various issues. And... Uh, there was, there was absolutely no doubt about it that, uh, that, that we were really realizing that that was not the place for us. And uh, so, but in the meantime, until we came to that point, Anita was baptized in that church, mm -hmm. and she was baptized by immersion, and she, she won't hardly get in a swimming pool. She doesn't like to be in water that's over her head. But she had an experience where the Lord just convinced her one to, at one moment that... Uh, you can go ahead and do this. I'm with you. You're going to be fine. And she said it was the most incredible experience of her life. So now we're both baptized Christians. I'm a baptized Christian backslider, you know, in and out. She's Aren't just we all? Uh, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyhow, over the next couple of years, that all really got worse because I was living more in the flesh than I was in the spirit, and. Uh, then I had another awakening, and it was, uh, it was when I kind of, if you hear the story about people in AA, and AA will say, until you get to a point, until you are broken, and until you get to that point, uh, you're not going to get sober. Mm -hmm. You know, you just got to get to that point of your total brokenness, and then, then you've got some hope. Well, I reached that point, and by now, all of this from the Daddy's prayers at night, all the way through uh, going to the Pentecostal church with Grandma, to uh, 
the uh, experiences of uh, the happy hopper and the pastor there and being baptized and kind of in and out with God for the, all those years, all of that kind of came to the point when I said, okay, I can't fix this, and I'm about to lose everything that means anything to me, mm. and I can't save it. But by now I had realized that there was a God who could. So over that period of some, oh, goodness, it had to be somewhere in the vicinity of uh, 30, 15, 20, 25 years, 20 years. So, but I got to that point and I just cried out to God and I said, I said, I need your help. And the first place, and I give the spirit credit for this. I th the first place I think God sent me was not to the church, he sent me to an AA meeting. Mm. And uh, I went to uh, AA meetings for, by this time we were out of that other church that we'd lined up with where Anita had been baptized. We were out of there. And, uh, so did you not have a church home we did at not. this time? Okay. We did not. Yeah. And uh so I I just uh I just cried out to God and uh the next thought that came to my mind was uh call AA, call their emergency line. And I called and I you know phoned this this guy. I said, I'm at the end of my rope. I've reached bottom. That's what they call it, you know, you gotta reach bottom. I'm at the bottom, I need some help. And he said, Don't go anywhere, tell me where you are, give me the address, I'll be there in ten minutes. Wow. And this guy came, and he became my sponsor, and I went to five meetings that day. So God got me on the road to being sober where I would probably be in a better position to listen to him. And uh, that was the beginning point of, uh, of, a, of really a life of surrender to Christ. You've mentioned that a few times, this idea of fully surrendering to Christ. And I've heard people say that, and I'd love to get more understanding from you of what that means and, and what that feels like. Because sometimes um, it it's strong language, but sometimes I feel at a disadvantage, having grown up in the church, having been constantly surrounded by this, I don't know if I've reached a point of brokenness where I need to fully surrender. And so I don't know what that feels like, really. What is that supposed to elicit within me mm -hmm. that I know I'm fully surrendering and not because I'm a person who I want to take control mm -hmm. of whatever's going wrong. I want to find a way to fix it. Well, let me first of all say that uh, none of us absolutely have to have um, a testimony of a point of total brokenness and surrender in order for our relationship with Christ to be authenticated. It doesn't take that. Um, but I think what it really ends up being, Alyssa, is the, the notion that every time we come to the end of ourselves— we turn to God. And you know, that, that can happen several times during the day. Um, but a crisis a moment, a crisis of faith, as it sometimes is called, where either you step out uh, into the faith that you know and place your trust fully on God, or you don't. That's a choice we're all presented with. And I think that based on the the severity of the particular circumstance that we're facing, um, it, it's, it's going to be a more heartfelt, maybe even a more emotional uh, reaction to our circumstances. 
But, you know, the Bible says that uh, uh, seek me and you will find me. You know, God says that to us. He says, when you cry out to me, I'm going to hear you. I'm going to hear you and I'm going to meet you where you are. And uh, so I, I don't think we have to have any kind of a major crisis like that. But the idea of a full surrender to God is something that I think we, day by day, we're continuing to uh, turn loose of more, more of ourselves and grab hold of more of him. Uh, I'm not sure that there's ever a complete, unconditional surrender to God uh, that, isn't, uh, that isn't subject to being derailed at some time, you know? It's I think that's what the devil and, does. Yeah, it's not a one and done. That's it. That's it. The, you know, the, the devil is after us all the time. Temptation comes. Uh, we give in a little bit, you know, and then we got to get back on track. But, um, but I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a crisis moment necessary necessary for someone to say, God, I want things your way. You know, I, I want to live life the way you want me to live it, and. Uh, and I think that's that word surrender is really maybe overused. Mm. I think it's I think it's kind of overused. But really, you know, the Bible talks about trust. Yeah, it's a trust in the one who created you. I think that the word surrender. For first of all, we don't like it <laughs> because who doesn't never wanna, surrender? Yeah, who doesn't want to be controlled? Especially like exactly like you said in this this overhyped environment of society that we lived in. There is this idea of never surrender, never yeah. give. It's giving up. It feels like giving up, but mm -hmm. that's not what surrendering is because. When we trust God, we get to participate in God's yeah, story. And I think right. that maybe some of the negativity around the world, sur the word surrender is this idea of just passively giving up yeah, and letting yeah. things happen around yeah. you. And it, I, it's, it's so subtle. It really is. And, yeah. But there's a big difference between yeah. what we mean when we're using surrender in modern terms and surrender in spiritual terms. Right. And in a, uh, you know, our Yankee independence, uh, which characterizes Americans, you know, um, we, we, don't, uh, we don't give up, you know, and that's just not a, uh, that's not a quality that we want to, uh, that we want to present mm -hmm. as part of ourselves. But... Uh, I think that when I, I like the idea of coming to God humbly, I, I like that much more than, um, than, than in a state of, of, uh, just totally giving up because you're not totally giving up. You're tapping into the greatest resource that you'll ever have for newfound strength and courage and, and the ability to go on, you know, uh, but I like the idea of coming to God in humility mm -hmm. and knowing that I can't handle it. Mm -hmm. It's being willing to admit that you can't and, uh, and knowing that he can. And when you put those two things together, great things begin to happen. Well, and so that, so for you, it was a point of crisis. It was a point of yeah. brokenness that mm -hmm. brought you back into right. the fold. And so right. it sounds like for you, it was all about humility and expressing, you know, just letting go of the things you thought you could control and saying, I humbly come to you for help and guidance. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Amen.
That's okay. right. And I think that that then led to our, um, our involvement with the United Methodist Church. Because once I did that, once I, I really cried out to God and he met me there and I started getting sober and, uh, and I, we started talking about going back to church, you know, and we knew that we wanted to do that, but we weren't going back to that other church. We wanted something different. So um, there was a pretty good-sized United Methodist Church not too far from where we lived. We were in Florida at the time, and I was still in the Air Force. And uh, we uh, drove by this big church, pretty good-sized church, I guess it was. But um, we drove by it one day, and I—you're <laughs> going to love this. There were some guys standing outside, the, outside in, just outside the church there, and they were all smoking. I said, hey, that's a church for me. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. And, yeah. You know, at that time, I had already, it was, let's see, it was in 1982 that the Lord delivered me from alcohol. But it was two years later before I quit smoking. And I was still doing a pack a day or more, you know. But uh, the things in small steps, you know, baby steps. Yeah. But, just one vice at a time. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, I said, hey, did you notice that? I looked, it's told Anita, I said, these guys are out there smoking. That might be the church for us. And we both just kind of laughed it off. But then we decided to go and visit. Did you know anything about Methodism before no, going? nothing. Mm -mm. So we went to the church and they had us sign in. You know, we'd like to get a little information about you. Uh, uh, so anyway, we did that. And the next week, it must have been, it was probably Sunday afternoon or evening, we got a call from somebody at the church, and it was not one of the pastors. It was one of the members of the church called, said, introduced themselves, and said, we really appreciate you coming to the church today, joining us for worship. Uh, we'd like to stop by for a, a short visit, see if you have any questions you want to ask about the church or anything. Would it be okay if we did that? So we set up a visit, and these folks came over, and they were really nice, and they you know, were really welcoming and uh, I think, you know, they could, they could tell that there was a smoker in the house. But, um, but anyway, um, they were very kind to us and encouraged us to come back and everything, and we did. And we just, that was the beginning of that personal touch with that visit was a big part of what got us back the second time and the third and the fourth. And, and then finally, uh, that just became our home church. And... Uh, became the church that our kids went through confirmation in. And, uh, and I just, uh, I had a really good pastor there. And he was, uh, he'd been a Methodist pastor for a long, long time. He's gone on to his reward now, but uh, Ed was just a, a wonderful guy. And after we'd been in the church for a couple of years, uh, serving in different capacities. You know, I was kind of one of these all-in guys. Then when, uh, when I sort of uh, got into the stream of Christian life, I wanted to do everything. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to be involved in everything. Well, I ended up being the lay leader of that church, and I was a lay leader for probably four or five years. And uh, I was also what was called a certified lay speaker. And in those days, they're now called uh, lay servants, that's what the United Methodist calls them. We've got several people that are certified lay servants mm -hmm. here at Treach. And, and for those listening, uh, lay people or the laity are simply uh, 
non-ordained people in the church. So we are all called to be ministers within the church. We are all servants of Christ, uh, but not all of us are are ordained. And so if you're not ordained, you're a lay person. Exactly. That's a good explanation. But I was a lay speaker at that time, and every once in a while, the senior pastor would give me a chance to preach in one of the worship services. And uh, so (laughs) these seeds that were that were planted uh, back with Daddy praying the Lord's Prayer and then reciting the 23rd Psalm and then going to Pentecostal church with Grandma and all these other things. The happy that, hopper. Uh, yeah. The happy hopper. <laughs> all those things. God was using all that to bring us along uh, as a family into his kingdom. And uh, so as time went along, uh, I was having conversations with my pastor uh about different things. And he said, you know, I, I really want you to consider praying and, and really considering this, uh, the idea of going to seminary. By now, I was 40, probably 44, 43 years old. Pretty set in your ways at that point, or so you thought? Well, I figured, you know, yeah, I figured I was, uh, I was eager to learn. Yeah. But, uh, but on the other hand, that, wouldn't, that had never been anything that had crossed my mind. I enjoyed serving in the church. And... Uh, so uh, Ed's influence was, uh, was very instrumental in moving me toward applying for uh, the candidacy program in the United Methodist Church. That's where people who are uh, exploring ordained ministry uh, as a vocation uh, could explore it under the supervision of, uh, of the denomination. And so I entered into that process and uh, over time, ended up going to uh, Asbury Theological Seminary, and uh, that happened in 1993. So that was 30 years ago that I went to seminary and started serving in my first church. It was 30 years ago. So, uh, but uh, you can kind of gather from that chain of events that took place over my lifetime that uh, that God had something in mind that had never crossed mine, and. Uh, and yet, it uh, as far as I'm concerned, it all turned out turned out for the best for me. Well, and so you had been in this United Methodist Church and and grown in your faith, and as a family, were very connected during your time in that church before going to seminary. Um, were you educating yourself on the theology, on the doctrine of the Methodist Church, or were you just simply participating in the church and then? did a deep dive into the theology and doctrine once you went off to seminary? I think the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really interested in, in reading and understanding the Bible. I, I led some Bible studies at that time, and I was learning a lot from, from our pastor's preaching, learning a lot from him. And, uh, but it wasn't until uh, I was kind of set into a, an environment where the curriculum was laid out, you know, and if you're going to get a uh, Masters of Divinity, uh, you've got to take these courses and, and pass them. And that's when I really started getting into theology and into doctrine and those kind of things. And uh, uh, one guy told told me one time, he said, he said, you are a really great lay leader. And he said, I'm sorry you went to seminary and it ruined you. And I thought, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, really, I know. But they, there were some people that just felt like, uh, you know, if you're a, if you're a really strong lay leader in a church. You don't need anything else. 
But that kind of leaves out, well, what does God want? Mm-hmm. You know, what does God want for us? What does he want for the church? What does he want for me? But uh, it's kind of funny. My pastor, Ed Chandler, uh, you asked me a while ago, uh, you mentioned something about wanting to know why, why the Methodist church. We, uh, Ed used to say that in his preaching a lot of times he'd say, you know, somebody asked me one time uh, what I'd be if I wasn't a Methodist. And he said, I told him I'd be ashamed. Wow. <laughs> but he wasn't, you know, he was joking. I was like, oh, but, my gosh. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, on the other hand, what he was saying was there was no other, there was no other way for him to uh, worship, to know God, to learn the Word, study the Word yeah. of God. Uh, but what would you be if you weren't a Methodist, Ed? I'd be ashamed. <laughs> uh, well, you know, and I don't know his upbringing. Do you happen to know if he was raised Methodist? Yes, or he was. His? Yeah. That has been my experience as well. Not that I'd be ashamed if I was Methodist, <laughs> but um, having grown up in the Methodist church, I have visited and experienced all sorts of different denominations and faith traditions, but something just keeps drawing me back to United Methodist. And um, Do you know what they are? What? Tell me. Do you know what they are? <laughs> I'm just asking you, do you know what they are? Those things that keep drawing you back. There is an openness uh, that I haven't experienced elsewhere. And being a person who is very curious and opinionated and outspoken um, and a woman, sometimes I'm not received well in other church environments that are maybe a little bit more... um, set in their ways, unwilling to be challenged, unwilling to take the big questions. And I have never in all of the churches that I've been to met a Methodist pastor who was afraid of the big questions or unwilling to have a conversation like that. And with many other church traditions, um, I've been brushed off or I've been told, you just have to trust God. You don't mm, need to ask those mm, questions, mm, you know, yeah. and that was never enough for me. And so over and over again, I just keep coming back to Methodism because my experience has been, this is a place where your doubts are welcome, where your questions are welcome mm-hmm. and without judgment, Yeah, because there's the understanding that we all have these doubts. We all have these questions. We're all wrestling with our faith constantly. And if you're not wrestling with your faith, maybe it's time to dig a little deeper. Yeah, for sure. That's right. Well, thanks for answering that. <laughs> I feel like I'm on the other side of the mic now. No. Uh, I appreciate it, but uh, thanks for Well, I'd me love that. to hear your answer to that. What is it that draws you in about Methodism to the point that you got your master's in divinity from a United Methodist institution? Um, I would call Asbury Seminary uh, a Wesleyan Wesleyan. Wesleyan Theological Will you Seminary. share the difference? With yeah. Me? Um, United Methodist is a denomination, a Christian denomination. Uh, but when we speak of the theology behind the United Methodist movement, the United Methodist Church, we're talking about theology that can be traced back to John Wesley. So that's the Wesleyan theological stream over against Calvinism, for example, or Lutheran uh, Luther's... Uh, understanding of Christian faith and of the Bible. Uh, John Wesley was the one who uh, really kind of laid out a stream of theology that uh, 
that, that ended up being the United Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't set out to start a new denomination. Uh, John Wesley was an Anglican priest and uh, in the Church of England, and he could see that the Church of England was really weak spiritually. Uh, and what he tried to do was to infuse life, uh, the life of the Holy Spirit, into the Church of England by uh, introducing a method, mm-hmm. if you will, of growing in the faith. And he created these, first of all, there were societies. Those were big groups of people that would gather to talk about the faith, to hear good preaching and those kind of things, but not a church. This was called a society. And then there were classes, which was a little bit smaller group that had a little bit different uh, kind of a emphasis. And then there were bands, which were groups of maybe only four or five people. And you never mixed the men and the women. You know, men would have their group. The women would have theirs. And one of the questions in the bands would be, uh, how have you sinned this week? Mm. Pretty I mean, personal. Really in, really it's like, incre- a, like what we would call an accountability group today. Exactly. Yeah. And his whole purpose was, the thing that I think disturbed Wesley most about the church was the possibility of the church having, and this is a quote from him, the form of godliness without any power. And if we can kind of look around the Christian scene of today, I think we can see some of that. We mm-hmm. can see a form of godliness. It looks, it's packaged, it's, it's wrapped, it's, it's got the right, right bows on it and things like that. But where's the power? Where's the power that's changing people's lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also know that um, with him trying to develop, not develop a method, but leaning into the spiritual practices and really showing, yeah, Yeah. um, that it was actually a group of people who started calling him Methodist and it was meant to be a slight. It It was was meant to be like a derogatory term. And then they just kind of uh, adopted it and said, yeah, that actually does sound like us. We are Methodist. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because we did have, they did have a very deliberate approach with these classes, these societies, classes, and bands. Mm-hmm. And then he had guidelines that he would give them: follow these, follow these procedures. This, if you can't follow these procedures, don't come. You're out. Uh, but he uh, that seems a little extreme to it me. It does. But... It does. But he took he took Christian growth, discipleship, and development, and Christian living very very seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wesley quoted St. Augustine, and the quote has since kind of become more Wesley's than it was St. Augustine's, but the two of them together kind of embrace this idea of, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. Mm. In all things, charity. I've heard that before, and I definitely would have attributed it to Wesley. I did not know that originated with St. Augustine. <laughs> yeah, it started back b- b- before, and I think Wesley really bought into that, and mm-hmm. he, he believed it, and he uh, encouraged those who were under his tutelage yeah. to, to embrace that too. Well, and I guess in the denominations, what we fall short of is what's essential and what's non-essential. That's the next question. Mm-hmm. We need to know what the essentials are. And for Wesley, uh, there weren't too many of them, but he was very clear on the fact that they were, uh, they were the non-negotiables of Christian faith. Um, for example, uh, some of the, the big ones were 
the idea of original sin. Uh, we don't we don't give on that. You know, that's that's what started the mess. You know, Adam and Eve, that whole deal. The authority of Scripture, the authority and the divine inspiration of Scripture was was one of the essentials for him. Uh, personal holiness, the idea that a person could be holy in their heart. In other words, their desires and their affections were aimed at God and uh, aimed at pleasing God and doing for him what he would have them to do. But there was a holiness of life, too, that extended over into the practices of, uh, of charity and service and caring for those who couldn't care for themselves and, and those kind of things. Um, another one of the essentials was uh, the idea of justification by faith. And this simply means you can't work your way to heaven. Mm. And he uh, was also uh, given credit for developing the theology of what's called preceding or prevenient grace, the grace of God that strikes at the heart of a person just enough to let a little light in where they will call out to God if they will. If they'll exercise their free will, God will give them a little bit of light to, uh, to say yes to him. Not everybody does. But the prevenient grace is what starts it all, because within us, our own sinful nature is always at odds with God, mm -hmm. always pushing him away, always wanting to do it our way. But without, without prevenient grace, we remain in a state of lostness spiritually and, and uh, in every other way. But when God moves on us, now we have the capacity, the capability, the supernatural enablement to say yes to him. That is one of the tenets that I have heard that is uniquely Methodist. I've never heard any other denomination speak to prevenient grace. And the way I've heard it described is the grace that comes before you that always was, that always is, and all it's a gift and mm -hmm. all you have to do is tap into it. That's it. And uh, uh, one of our former pastors here, Reverend Joe Schaefer, explained it to me in a way that I will never forget. Uh, he told me, uh, prevenient grace is like chips and salsa. You go to a Mexican restaurant and when you sit down, the chips and salsa is waiting for you on the table. And all you have to do is reach for it <laughs> and you can eat as much as you want and they'll bring you more, bring you more. and more <laughs> and more. And you don't have to ask for it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do anything except enjoy this gift. <laughs> and that's I was like, yeah. oh, wow. And so that's, that's it's just a permanent definition of prevenient graces, chips and salsa. <laughs> awesome. That's good. That sounds like Joe. We also, uh, one of the other essentials had to do with the assurance of, of salvation. Um, we don't have to walk around doubting whether, uh, whether we're in right standing with God or not. God will give us that assurance. The Bible says so, and that he really embraced this. And this, was really, this really came out of a personal experience that he had. Um, I think he was... Um, I think he was 34 years old, and he had an experience. He had been working hard to measure up to what he thought God wanted him to be. He, he was a very religious guy. He came from a religious family. I think there were 13 sibs in his family. And, uh, and he, he really, his mother and dad were deeply religious people. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a very... Uh, it was very intent on getting things right. 
But one time he had this, what he calls his heartwarming experience that he had. And he, uh, he said at that point, at that moment, I think the, the preacher that he was listening to was preaching in the book of Romans. And he said, I, I was assured of my salvation. I was assured that I was in right standing with God and that he loved me. And uh, it was interesting that that came to him about the same age as, as I woke up. It's interesting. There's something about your mid thirties. That's like, cause I'm in the middle of it right now. And I've had a few things happen that I'm like, Oh, God is, you know, coming after me (laughs) in some, a few different ways. I don't know what it is, but same, same for Jesus. Jesus hit his stride at 30, 32, 33, you know? So, yeah. Well, uh, don't resist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let me just tell you, don't resist. Just... Well, that's what, that's one of the questions that I had. At any point in this journey, did you resist God? Yeah. Yeah, I sure did. Uh, I think, again, that's that Romans 7 thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were times in, in my life when uh, people would try to talk to me about the Lord, and i just push them away. Say, yeah. I don't want to hear it, man. I, I do not want to hear it. That, you keep that to yourself. That's fine for you. Um, but yeah, I, there were times like that that I, I just despaired of my own soul. You know? Why do you think that you didn't want to hear it? Because it, it is um, in stark contrast to your initial introduction where you were like, I got to be baptized. Mm-hmm. And all you wanted was to hear it. Yeah. Where, when was it happening that you were like, I can't hear this right now? Um. I think it was probably tied to the the, the depth to which I'd gone in the addiction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, honestly, most folks who are trapped in some kind of an addiction uh, don't see any way out. It's a very dark, hopeless place. And uh, so uh, there's no point in hearing stuff like that. That That's, you know, you want to share a beer? Yeah, let's let's knock one down together. But... Let's stay away from that stuff. Yeah, you don't understand me. You don't understand my situation. Yeah, that's not helpful. Yeah, but um, but then when you you think about how you get delivered, how God's Spirit comes and sets you free, you know, Jesus said, "I've come that you might have life and have it in its fullest," and uh, and if the Son makes you free, S O N, not S U N. If the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. That's a message that we come away from along with our freedom that God wants us to share with other people who are trapped in some way, you know. And uh, so every once in a while I get a chance to do that, you know, and share the story of well, and I think your God's story, deliverance. Yeah, your story is a good reminder of when you are sharing that hopeful message, don't be discouraged if the person says, I don't want to hear it. Exactly. Because it's just, as you were saying, it's part of that 45 years of planting seeds yeah. <laughs> that God was yeah. doing in your life. Yeah. And now you're retelling your story and you're remembering those moments. And it was just all part of this, you know, grand coming to Christ story that you have. Yeah. So, That's right. so you, you did seminary, you um, learned about Methodism, and you learned about John Wesley. You learned about the theology and the doctrine. Yeah. What is it for you that keeps you 
not only coming back, but saying, this is, this is the church I want to pastor in. I think, I think one of the most important things for me is um, the centrality of God's love and love for others. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that being a central aspect of uh, Wesleyan theology is really important because, it's, in other words, it's not about me. <laughs> you know, it's about uh, it's about God loving me, and it's about me then passing that on to other people. Would you say that's unique to other theologies? Uh no, I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's unique at all. Uh, I would say that most Christian groups would would uh, agree with that being an important aspect of their of their theology. But I think that it's emphasized in a different way in in the Methodist Church. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, I think there's a there's an emphasis on, should be anyway, and I, I think this is sort of missing today, an emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think we have, uh, in our, if you go back and read the history of the way that, of what Wesley preached about and what the early Methodists believed, uh, there was a great emphasis and appreciation for the supernatural work of God in the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. that God does work supernaturally through people, through, other, through the agency of, of his own heavenly creatures, whatever you want to call it, angels. Uh, but I think, we, I think we have kind of set that aside in favor of a more sophisticated view of human existence. We, we, want to be, uh, we want to be more uh, grounded in the science of, of existence and less in the great possibilities of the supernatural work of, of, uh, of God. Yeah. Um, see, and the way I see it is science is part of the great possibilities. Sure it is. You know, like science, there's, God made science. It's it yeah, and it's mysterious and it's incredible. And there are so yeah. many unanswered questions. But I will that is one of the things I do love about the Methodist church is there is a willingness to embrace the mystery. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. and like there are things that within doctrine, we don't really make clear statements on. There aren't really clear statements on heaven and hell and what that looks like or what that what happens when you die, things like that. Yeah. Um, because we're saying, you know what, it's it's a mystery. But I think that there's room for our curiosity and creativity yeah. within our faith. And not everything has to be lined out for you with rules and regulations. Yeah, that's, I think that was Wesley's, um, I think that's what Wesley believed. And it was really, it really reflected in his preaching too. And uh, one of the things that Wesley did, he was very, very deliberate about focusing on the basics Mm -hmm. of faith. Uh, One of the quotes that, uh, that I appreciate is that he saw his role, uh, that he was supposed to make people think and help them think. Make them think and help them think. 
we're, we're created with a brain, you know, mm-hmm. let's use it. You know, yeah. God doesn't mind if we use it. Well, in um, a lot of churches, the last thing they want is for you to bring your critical thinking to the table. Yeah. Because it's kind of like what I was saying before is like, then you're challenging, then you're questioning, then yeah. you're doubting when you're bringing your, your mind into, and your personal experience into the equation. Exactly. And Wesley said, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, he did. And what you've, what you've just mentioned is the approach to doing theology, if we can do theology, uh, arriving at conclusions about the Word of God and about the things of God. There were four things that Wesley, uh, sort of sort of a four-legged stool that, that he stood on or sat on as it related to theology. And the first, most important, was the Scripture, that that would be your, your main source and your main authority for whatever your theological conclusions might be. But Scripture, the tradition, and the history of the church, how did the, how did the church interpret this over history, this particular passage or this particular principle or this notion that we're struggling with here. What has the church said about it over, over time? So scripture, tradition, um, reason, reason. Use your brain. He said you apply your brain power, your reason, to analyze these things. Think about them. Draw conclusions. And then the fourth one was personal experience, whatever your experience might be. But it always came back to Scripture. If those other three things could not be um, correlated to Scripture and that they could find their, their truth in the Bible, then you toss them out and try again. Mm-hmm. But he had a very systematic way of doing theology, and he encouraged this in his, in his societies and classes and bands. Well, it's, it's like he's telling people, don't just take this at face value. Mm-hmm. Like right. wrestle with it, think about it, yeah. you know, before you claim that you believe something or before you come to a conclusion, run it through this litmus test, see if it holds true, mm-hmm. um, which I imagine was uh, very new and different for the church at the time. Yeah, Not new and different in the history of the church, because I think that, uh, Jesus kind of set that precedent for us really? of really yeah. think about it, you yeah, know? For sure. Um, I think John Wesley, too, with his, um, his great appreciation for the person of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and uh, the ministries of the Holy Spirit as described in Scripture, um, he was criticized. It was, it was an interesting thing. He was criticized for um, what someone would have called um, extreme enthusiasm at some of his uh, gatherings. He did most of his preaching outdoors. He, he didn't have a church. Mm-hmm. He was Church of England, but he traveled all over England and some in the United States preaching outdoors. And a lot of the uh, more religious people found that to be very, that was really kind of gross. You know, you don't preach outside. You got to be in a nice church building or something. But, uh, but the one thing that they, they criticized the Methodists for was their, um, they called it an embarrassing phenomenon when they expressed themselves emotionally mm-hmm. uh, as the Holy Spirit came to enliven them and to uh, awaken them to the presence and the glory and the goodness and the love of God. If people would really wake up to that stuff, Alyssa, 
we'd be seeing some folks just really getting excited mm-hmm. in church yeah. or out in the field, you know, but uh, they called it an embarrassing phenomenon. <laughs> and uh, I think for that reason, we've kind of set that part of our religion aside and we're missing out on the great power of the spirit. The enthusiasm. That's kind of sad. Yeah. And that's what, you know, one of the, uh, I think it was Wesley and you'll have to correct me or maybe it's United Methodist, but one of the tenets is enthusiastic worship. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I don't remember the last time I was in an enthusiastic worship service, <laughs> like, because for me, enthusiasm, enthusiasm is what I experience at a concert or what I exactly. experience, yeah. you know, yeah. in true, uh, like communal experience. Well, church should be a communal experience every Sunday. It doesn't have to be flashing lights and no, uh-uh. huge displays or anything like that. But I do think that we're missing some enthusiasm. It's become rote. Yeah. And how sure can has. we shake that up? Yeah. And is that what Wesley was wanting to do was shake it up? I think, I, I don't know uh, whether that was his goal, uh, but his great fear was a church that had a form of godliness, but without the power. Yeah. And so in order to awaken the church, he really, he was, he was, uh, he would describe himself as the one who preaches the plain truth for plain people. Mm. And he wanted to preach in very basic terms and so that uh, folks would understand it mm-hmm. and, uh, and embrace it. How how do you think, you know, going from John Wesley's time to today, how do you think Methodism is similar or different from what Wesley was going for? I think one of the things that might still be pretty much the same is uh, our polity. Um, I think a lot of the ways in which our denomination functions— uh, administratively and organizationally is much the same as it was back then. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, I think it could be good from the sense that you always know what to expect. Uh, Every annual conference is going to be conducted the same way. Every general conference, maybe not so much anymore, but most general conferences where the whole church meets. Uh, delegates from the whole church, not the whole church as a body, but uh, the business is going to be conducted much the same way as it was, you know, 200 years ago. Uh, so consistency may be a, a good thing in that regard. On the other hand, um, we we might need a uh, we might need a little bit of a transformation in our uh, uh, in our way of conducting our business. That is. Uh, that can be a little bit more reflective of our uh, of the way that people conduct their business today. You know, uh, I've been to some annual conferences that were very, very spiritual, very worshipful. Uh, been to others that were, I felt like I was, you know, it was eighteen fifty five again. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so I think the polity is pretty much uh, pretty much the same in many ways, but um, I think one of the big differences is that I don't think the authority of the Bible and its uh, divine origins are as fully appreciated as they once were. 
think the Bible has become more of a guideline and subject to uh, revision to accommodate changes in culture. And I think that's very different than it was back then. The Bible was, had tremendous authority, and Wesley believed it. And uh, I think the churches, in large part, operated under that premise. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard, um, now I wish I could remember who it was, but somebody was just speaking to religion in general. And I think that what you mentioned is not a new phenomenon. Um, We are not for the first time trying to take the Bible and force it into our culture. And what the speaker basically said is when it comes to religion and culture, culture will always win and we will always take our religion and fit it into our culture as opposed to taking our culture and fitting it into our religion. And I think that we've seen that happen over and over again in the history of Christianity with from uh, the, you know, original church forming to how are we translating scripture to there's always going to be things trying to serve or manipulate to fit someone's agenda or to, yeah, make it make sense to the people of the time. Um, I get what you're saying though, because I think that I, what I would say is there is more doubt than ever before when it comes to scripture. But I think that us Christians have done that because we have used scripture as a weapon Mm. against so many people. So why would they look to that as an authority when it's only been used to hurt them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. That is a good point. I think that the idea that, uh, that scripture has lost its, um, its power. (laughs) I mean, even in our, even our uh, mission statement in the United Methodist church is, uh, to make disciples for Christ for the transformation of the world. But is that really happening so much as uh, the transformation is taking place in the church, that the church is being changed? Um, But, you know, we've still... (laughs) God's church will always be, and uh, the Lord said that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. So there's nothing that you and I or anybody else can do to uh, bring the church to its knees. Uh, we, can, we need to be brought to our knees a lot of times. But I think the other thing that may be missing, and this is, I think this goes along with the, the authority and interpretation of Scripture and its, uh, uh, its authority for our lives, is what I mentioned about the Holy Spirit. I, think, I don't think the Holy Spirit... Uh, I don't think we're encouraged to experience the Spirit. We're encouraged to know about the Spirit. Mm. I think the same could be true for the Bible, is that we're encouraged to know and read the Bible, yeah. but not to experience it and not to understand where it came from, mm. who is it talking to, what was the context of the time, why is this verbiage so important, what does it mean then, and why does it mean a little different now? Like, I don't think that we spend a lot of time in the... Um, weeds, we just read it at face value and says, okay, the Bible says this, that's yeah. what we're going to do, you yeah. know? And I don't, I don't think that's what it means to see scripture as authority. 
um, any more than talking about the Holy Spirit is experiencing the Holy Spirit. Right, exactly. Yeah. I think we can give assent to the fact that, yes, the Bible is authoritative for life. It's, it's God's Word. God says, this is how I want you to live, and the reason I want you to live this way is because that's what's going to be best for you. And it's going to be best for you because I love you, mm-hmm. and, and I always want your best. But uh, for us to say that, uh, and maybe the authority of Scripture, I think, puts people off. We, we don't like to have to submit to authority in our modern culture. Mm-hmm. We, uh, there's a real resentment, I think, widespread resentment of authority. We all want to be our own authority. Mm-hmm. I will decide what's right for me. I will decide what's right for, for anything. Mm-hmm. I don't need anybody to tell me what's right and what's wrong. But that's not the way that God made things work well. <laughs> well, and I think that part of what can be confusing about seeing Scripture as authority is, does that mean all of it? Every single word in there? Because there are things in the Scripture that talk about, as a woman in the church, I'm to be silent, and I shouldn't be teaching, and I shouldn't be preaching, and all of these things. Is that authoritative? Like, what do we really mean? And there are things in the Old Testament about what rules and regulations were to follow. Well, we said when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law and the prophets, mm-hmm. and we don't have to be held to those rules anymore. Right. So is that no longer an authority? Like what? So I, I guess I understand like the grand arc of God's love story in the Bible being authoritative of like how we are to love others Mm -hmm. in the way that Jesus taught us, I could foresee the gospels being authoritative. But, you know, as a woman reading scripture, there are a lot of stories in there that I'm like, this, I can't, I, this has to be just a flash in the pan of 2000 years ago of a misunderstanding of the way you are to treat women Mm. and not something that I say, you know, this applies to me well, it today. It wasn't a misunderstanding then. It was a cultural norm. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's like, it's, well, I like to think that maybe if they knew what we know now, <laughs> they wouldn't have been so horrible to women. Um, yeah. But, and, and there are many churches who still hold on to those things and say, yeah, women aren't allowed in leadership. Women yeah. aren't allowed to be clergy. And they say that it's based on the authority of scripture. And so I think that maybe that's where people struggle with this concept of the scripture being authoritative in our lives because, well, which parts are you saying yeah. have authority yeah. over me? Yeah. I think everything has to kind of bubble out for me anyway. Everything bubbles out of my relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to view scripture through the lens of my relationship with him. I'm going to understand and appreciate the role of the Holy Spirit through my relationship with him. And if he is Lord, then I'm going to look to, uh, to what he has said. I'm going to look to what, how he lived and what he did and, um, and just try to pattern my life as much as possible after that. Uh, and I think that's where the authority comes in. Jesus is Lord. The Bible isn't mm-hmm. Lord. Jesus is Lord. And, uh, and yet... The scripture is an important, uh, it's the story. I love the way you describe that, the arc of the story of God's love. I, I think that's a beautiful way to describe it. And that story is... Uh, full of human error. <laughs> and full of grace. Yeah. And, 
and glorious power too. Yeah. yeah. Well, parting words um, about Methodism and and you coming into uh, this, you know, theological belief. What do you wish that people understood about Methodist theology? Um, I think one of the things I would go back to Wesley again, and I would say that um, that Wesley intended for people to know God, and that God intends for people to know Him. That's why Wesley preached the way that he did. And, and now, if you read his any of his sermons, the way that he actually wrote them. Uh, I would rather eat a paper napkin. I mean, but <laughs> well, I know that uh, Gracie in our worship meetings has threatened in the past to print out a Wesley sermon and deliver it. <laughs> and just read it, yeah, just read it. Boy, you'd have them snoring in the aisles there. But uh, but no, I've 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 got a volume of works that were done by a Asbury Seminary professor that uh, he took all of Wesley's sermons and put them in modern English. And they're wonderful. They're long. I mean, they preached for a long time. Uh, but they're so comprehensive and so easily understood uh, by everybody. And I think that I think I wish that people would would know that the, what the Methodist Church stands for is it's under Wesley's original vision of Christian faith and the church not the Methodist Church, I'm talking about Big C Church, mm-hmm. was uh, the love of God and the grace of God and the assurance of our salvation, knowing that we have eternal life in Christ and, uh, and we don't have to walk around hopeless, helpless, and yeah. fearful. We're not playing this barter system with God. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, th- I, just, I just would like to see the Methodist Church recapture some of those old kind of plain truth for plain people. I think one of the things that's beautiful about really sitting with that, uh, the grace and the love, is that it humbles you in in such a way that, you know, you have those moments in life that you feel so small in such a beautiful way and insignificant and just like, you know, I will be back to dust one day and none of this will matter. And I think that there's sometimes comfort in that. And it's not in a negative way of, I wish I wasn't here anymore, but it's in a positive way of like, this is all so small in the grand scheme. And Mm -hmm. if we just focus on love and grace and being the best version of love and light that we can be while we're here, um, that it, it... there is that feeling within the Methodist church of that's what we're trying to accomplish. And of course we're human and we make mistakes and we bicker and we get caught up in the rules and we get caught up on who's allowed and who gets to be loved and who doesn't get to be loved. And Mm -hmm. you know, all of these ridiculous things. Those are Um, the non-essentials. The non-essentials. But what it comes down to is just love and grace over and over again. And, and we invite you to, feel small and humbled by this huge presence of God that we'll never fully grasp. <laughs> the thing I think I would really like for people to know uh, and for the 
Methodist Church at large to really, um, to really embrace, and that is we don't have all the answers, and we know it. Mm. Uh, but what we do know uh, is important, and yeah, we're willing yeah. to say it. Yeah. We're willing to preach it, teach it, live it. We're willing to live it. Um, but uh, there's a lot we don't know. Knowing what you don't know is, is a big deal. That's important. I think it might be easier to know what you do know instead of what you don't know. <laughs> there's so much I don't know. Yeah. But I do think that's all, another part of Methodism, like you mentioned, is to... I can't tell you how many Methodist pastors I've asked a question and their answer is, I don't know. Yeah, I don't mind saying that. Yeah, and there aren't a lot of faith traditions where clergy is willing to answer with, I don't know, yeah. and I'll never know. There's no way to know <laughs> because we all want to have answers. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes you meet God where there are no answers. We believe that knowledge is power, don't we? Yeah. But I think, uh, I think faith is more powerful. Mm. Um, knowledge grounded, uh, faith grounded in knowledge is important. We gotta be, our faith has to be grounded in truth. Now, we can get off on a whole new conversation about what's truth, and that's... We'll do that on another episode. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's, uh, faith grounded in truth is uh, is an important thing, too, and I think we do that as Methodists. Mm. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing a piece of your story and your understanding. And this has been a joyful conversation for me. So. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Well, it's, it's always good to be with you. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back on to talk about truth with a capital T. Oh, I think I'm going to have a root canal <laughs> that day. <laughs> the Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org. And I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.